What beautiful lyrics. Well, uh, if you've been paying attention to the news, you know that recently we've heard about a lot of natural disasters. We, we've heard about the awful fires in Australia and, and how much they've advanced and destroyed it. And we've, we've heard about tornadoes that have come through our state and, and the Midwest and lives that have been lost and destruction and even the Great Lakes had huge waves as a result of that. This week, Puerto Rico had an earthquake uh, and, and many say that in some of those areas where the earthquake hit, that, that it, it was worse than when Hurricane Maria went through. And, and when we think about these humongous disasters, these this incredible forces of nature, we, we, we realize how, how powerless we are. I mean, with all of our knowledge, all of our technology, with all of our manpower, it, it, we stand before a fire like the, the one in Australia, and, and we wonder what it is that we can do. And, and we certainly want to be praying for all the people that have been suffering uh, the consequences of, of, of these tragedies. And when I think about the forces of nature, I also think about the forces in the spiritual world and, and how sometimes there are such strong forces that are so overwhelming, that are so huge and powerful that, that we stand before them and, and we wonder if there's anything that we can do. The, the current of, of things in this world, the, the, the change of values, the, the things that, that are going on in the culture around us sometimes seem to, to go so forcefully in a particular direction. We, we worry about our children and our youth and the information, uh, the, the pressure that they receive, the way that, that they have to deal with, with, with these things that seem to pressure them to go in one direction and we wonder what it is that we can do. And we're reminded that as followers of Jesus, that, that we're called to be countercultural, that, that, that we're called to go often against the current. And, and sometimes we wonder, can that be done? Is it possible for us to, to stand and, and go against the flow, against this, this culture around us? Today, we're looking at a story of three young men who, who stood in the midst of opposition. They, they stuck out like sore thumbs because they were so different and, and they were able to courageously face this, this opposition. It's found in the book of Daniel chapter three. And, and if you're familiar with the stories that come before it, you know that in, in Daniel chapter one, these four uh, Jewish men are taken captive from Judea. They are from royal families and they, they're brought to Babylon uh, by King Nebuchadnezzar in, in the area that maybe would not be Iraq, would now be Iraq. And, and they are in an academy preparing to be servants of, of the king. And, and the names of, of four of these young men that sort of stand out are, are Daniel, Shadrach, 
Meshach and Abednego. And in chapter one, we, we, we see that Daniel decides before he even gets there in his captivity, in his exile, he decides, he resolves that he will not defile himself with the king's food and wine. It wasn't a, a dietary decision. It wasn't a health thing. It was a spiritual commitment to his covenant God. And God honored his faith. He, God honored uh, his courage. And he gave him favor and grace before the king. Uh, not only him, but, but his three friends. And then we get to chapter two. And, and the king has a dream and no one can interpret it for him. And Daniel uh, is able to do it. I wish I could, I'd had time to tell you that story. It's an incredible story, but, but Daniel is able to interpret the dream and the king is so uh, stoked because Daniel was able to do that, that he promotes him to prime minister of, of the entire Babylonian kingdom. And Daniel says, well, what about my friends? I mean, that's, you know, that's a good friend when, when he remembers you, when they get promoted. Uh, uh, hello. And, and, and so uh, D Daniel uh, says, what about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? And he says, okay, we'll, we'll give them some prominent positions in the government too. And, and they're enjoying this, this incredible favor uh, in the kingdom before the king. And everything is going great until something unexpected and unfortunate happens. Why, why can't things just keep going good all the time, right? Why can't it just stay all right, every, every day. But here these, these, these guys are about to face a fiery trial, literally. Let, go with me to uh, our text in Daniel chapter 3, beginning with verse 7. We're going to read the entire chapter through the morning, but let's just start with the first three verses. It says, King Nebuchadnezzar, what a name. You know, I'm going to say this name multiple times in three services today, and somehow I'm going to get my tongue twisted. So if I call him Nebi, just forgive me. Uh, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, 60 cubits high and six cubits wide, and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. Verse four, then the herald loudly proclaimed, nations and people of every language, this is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, scyther, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, flute, scyther, lyre, harp, and all kinds of music, all the nations and people of every language fell down and worshiped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Uh, we, we see in this passage, the king had made this enormous statue, 90 feet tall, nine feet wide. That's, that's like nine stories tall. You can just imagine how ominous and humongous this, this image was, this statue. 
And it says it's a golden statue, whether it was made of gold completely, which I doubt, or it was just had a gold leaf on it. It, it, it was still something to be admired. And he ordered that everyone in his kingdom. Now, remember that the kingdom of Babylon at this time includes India, includes part of Northern Africa, includes the Middle East, that, that everyone in every tongue and language of the kingdom would bow down before this image of gold. And the incentive for doing so is that if you didn't do so, you'd be thrown in a fiery furnace. That's, that's uh, pretty motivating, isn't it? Uh, that, that, that anyone who refused to, to worship this golden statue would be executed by fire. I wonder what you would have done. I, I know, looking back at the story, you, you probably say, oh, of course, I would have done the right thing. But really, if you lived 2,500 years ago in, in another kingdom, and everyone in the kingdom was bowing down before this image, and the king said, if you don't bow down, I will throw you in the fire, what would you have done? And you say, well, thank God we don't have to worry about that today. We, we don't have golden images that we are forced to worship. But, but yet I, I want us to ask today, what are the current pressures of our world? What are the things that our culture pressures us to do? And what are the idols that we are tempted to worship? Let, let me give you three things as we go through this story that I think might be helpful. The first one is identifying the choice. The choice of who to worship. Do modern Christians struggle with idolatry? Do, do we, do, do modern Christians wonder who they're going to worship? The very basic question that Daniel, Shadrach, and, and Meshach, and Abednego had to answer was this. Who will we worship? Who will we bow down before? Although they were far from their homeland, far from the temple, far from the Torah, the scroll where the law of God was given, they knew the commandments well. They knew the first commandment, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make yourself a graven image. Thou shalt not bow down before a graven image. They, they knew that God required loyalty for himself, that he's a jealous God and, and only the one true living God is worthy and deserving of worship. Apparently Nebuchadnezzar's power had gotten to his head. He felt so proud of his leadership that he had built an image to celebrate the success of his kingdom. He said, look, I've done so well, we're gonna build an image. I don't know if, if his dream and the interpretation that Daniel gave him encouraged that because the dream had to do with a statue that had a golden head and, and it represented uh, Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom. And, and maybe he just got to his head and, and he said, well, you know, uh, but he had forgotten that Daniel said, God has given you this kingdom and God will bring about other kingdoms and then God will remove all the kingdoms and will introduce the kingdom that's forever. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar forgot that. He just liked the part that, 
I'm the king of kings. That's what Daniel had actually called him at that point. And, and so he builds this, this incredible image. Instead of asking people to say, look, let's find a way to worship the God of Daniel who interpreted my dream because he's the one that gives power to kings. He, he, he built a golden image. He built an idol. We don't know if the idol was one of the Chaldean gods or if it was an image of, of Nebuchadnezzar himself. You know, I, I still remember the images on my TV when Saddam Hussein's image was torn down. And it was just like a 30-foot image. I don't know, maybe Nebuchadnezzar was one of those guys that, that built himself a, a, an image of himself. But when the notice of this cultic dedication of the image went out, the four Jewish men had to make a choice. Who are we going to worship? Who, from in front of whom will we bow down? After all, everyone else is doing it. Everyone can't be wrong, right? I mean, the majority can't be wrong, right? If everybody is, is doing it, it's gotta be right. If the approval ratings for the king's policies are high, we'll just go along with the king, won't we? Let's jump on the bandwagon. Well, let's continue to read the story in verse eight. It says, at this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, may the king live forever. Your majesty has issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, scyther, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold. And that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who paid no attention to you, your majesty. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Now, when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, scyther, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, if you're ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? The Jewish men had enjoyed favor with the king. They occupied high positions in government. But anytime a child of God has success, anytime a child of God has favor, there will be others who are jealous. There, there will be people who are envious. Do you know that? Do you know? Do you have politics at your work? Where, where people are out to get you when, when things go well for you? Somehow this refusal to worship the king's golden image had gone unnoticed by Nebuchadnezzar, but not for long, because sure enough, they, there were some guys who, who didn't like that, that Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were, were so high up and so liked by the king. They said, we're, we're going to turn them in. We're going to expose them. And the, thing, the king doesn't take their words for granted. He, he wants to hear. He, he doesn't uh, order an execution from a distance. He says, bring them in. I want to ask him myself. I want to find out if this is true. And, and not only does he want to hear from them, hoping that maybe they'll deny it because he likes them, but he kind of gives them another chance. Look, this is what you're supposed to do. Just in case you hadn't heard it right, this is what you're supposed to do. And if you do it, everything's going to be okay. No, no ticket, no penalty, no jail time, no, no fire. 
but bow down because if you don't, then I'm going to have to throw you in the fire. And the question becomes, who will you and I worship? You know, today when we talk about idolatry, there are still people who, who worship graven images. There, there are still people who, who have idols. There are still false religions that uh, practice idolatry and, and, uh, and obviously that's still wrong. But, but most of us here probably don't struggle with that. So you say, well, what does idolatry have to do with me? I, I want to offer you three kinds of idols or three kinds of idolatry that I think we struggle in our, in our modern world in, in our Western world. And the first one is what I call sinful excesses. Sinful excesses. That means that, that God has created some, some good things and for, for our good, but we've taken those things and we've made them gods. Uh, we, 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 we go to excess. When, the, when they're meant to be just part of our lives, we, 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 occupy, we make them occupy a prominent place. And it can happen with sex, it can happen with money, it can happen with a hobby, it, it can happen with family, it can happen with work. It's, it's when we take those good things that God has given us and we begin to give them the loyalty and the allegiance and the passion that belongs to God, then we're committing idolatry by excess. The, the second kind of idolatry that sometimes we may struggle with is what I call scriptural compromises. That's when, that's when we look at the values and the morals of our world and we make the Bible fit the world. We, we compromise what the Bible says so, so that it fits the world. And, and in a sense, that's idolatry because we're, we're worshiping the values of the world instead of God's values. We're, we're following another God we're making the Bible fit what, what others think it should fit. Anytime that you have a king and a kingdom and religion mixed together and they're forcing that religion on the conscience of people, that's, that's idolatry. And it can happen in Babylon and, and it can happen in the U.S. When, when, when the state and the church, when, when government and religion come together to impose something on people, that becomes idolatrous. So scriptural compromises... And then thirdly, what I call spiritual distortion. By, by that I mean when, when we, and this is the more subtle one of the three, when we, when we make Jesus in our own image. When, when we are, are projecting our own values and religion and politics onto Jesus and, and Jesus looks more like our culture than he does like the God of the Bible. If you're Jesus, if you're Jesus, if you can explain him completely doctrinally, if he lines up with all of your political views, if he lines up with all of your cultural preferences, if your Jesus never challenges you, if your Jesus makes you comfy and cozy, then you have a small Jesus. You've put him in a box. If Jesus fits in your mind and in your little boxes, then he's too small for you. I, I, I feel like the danger, theologically speaking, on the left it, it is that the left will make God look like the rest of the gods of the world. He, he's too small of a God. He, he lines up with the rest. 
And on the extreme right, I think that, that the danger is that the God, that, that the extreme God, that the extreme right creates is a God who, who, who is angry and uncompassionate, who looks so different from the God of the Gospels. He's a smaller God than the Jesus of the kingdom of God. You see, because Jesus doesn't fit our, our extremes, he, he's God. The battle for whom we will worship continues today. Whom will we worship? The, the struggle for our allegiance continues. We need to make a choice. Will we worship the things that God has given us? Will we compromise our values according to the world? Will we make Jesus in our own image? I read a story recently about a lady by the name of Rosaria Champagne Butterfield in, in a Christian magazine. She, she tells her story as, as a professor of, of an important university, a professor of women's studies and, and part of the LGTB community and, um, and, and leftist position and a feminist and, and just hated uh, Christians and the church for, for the image that she had of them. Uh, the, the, the impression that they had given her about who Jesus is. And, and, uh, and she set out to, to speak against that. And, and, and when she achieved tenure at the university, she published a book. And, and then she wrote an article in a local newspaper uh, defending her views against Christians. And, and she got hate mail back from Christians. And, and she got uh, praises from non-Christians. But one letter stood among the many and it was a letter from a Christian, and it wasn't hate mail. He wasn't hating her. He wasn't telling her off. And it wasn't the praises of, of, the, of the atheist either. It, it was a pastor who said, hey, Rosaria, how did you come to that conclusion? And, and where have you done your research? And he began to ask questions, and he invited her to dinner at his house. And she felt loved by him and she saw his example of how he was genuine and transparent and, and she observed him. He didn't judge her. He didn't write her off. And she continued to be in, with her partner. She continued to live in that community. She continued to teach. But, but they kept on having conversations. And she said, you know, if I'm going to find out how wrong these Christians are, I'm going to need to get familiar with their book. If I'm going to prove this crazy is wrong, I need to get familiar with what they're reading. And, and she began to read the Bible and he began to, to speak to her. She, she was in a party with people that, that, that live her lifestyle and, and one of them said, hey, Rosario, there's something different about you. And one day she, she was in bed with her partner and, and, and she got up and she said, I got to go to church. And she went to the church with a, with a pastor, uh, a friend of hers had accepted her and loved her. And she, she felt this love and, and this acceptance and she heard the gospel. And then she knew she had to make a choice. She knew that, that if she chose Jesus, she, she had to give up everything. Uh, that, that, that she would have to leave her lifestyle and, and her beliefs that, that were uh, against Jesus and the gospel and, and she would have to admit that she was wrong and, and begin again. But, but as she kept hearing the gospel, as she kept getting loved, she said, I need to follow Jesus. And she became a follower of Jesus. She says, my conversion was a train wreck. But I'm so glad it happened because I'm a different person. I've experienced the love of God. It's a choice. Whom will you worship? Secondly, you need to have the confidence of who can rescue. 
Nebuchadnezzar had posed a question to the three Jewish young men, what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? It's evident that Nebuchadnezzar had a savior complex, isn't it? He'd come to believe that the success in his kingdom was, was because of him. He was willing to defy other kings and he was willing to defy other gods. Man, it's, it's crazy how people can go delusional when they're in power. Throughout history, there's been kings and princes and governors who, who have made their people tremble, who have intimidated and bullied their people. History is filled with the pharaohs and the Nebuchadnezzars, the, the Herods and, and the Neros, the, the Lenins, the Hitlers, the Francos, the Mussolinis, the Husseins, the Gaddafis, the Chavises, the Castros. And I wonder how many times followers of Jesus have had their faith tested in those contexts? How many times has, has their God been put to the test? How many times has the question been asked, what God can save you from my hand? Let's look at verse 16 as we continue our story. It says, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we're thrown in the blazing furnace, the God who we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Three young men, away from their homeland, away from their church, away from their people, but sure about who they worship. How do we respond when our faith is questioned? How, how do you feel when, when Christianity is ridiculed by others? How do you feel when, when you feel like the mainstream culture is, is wrecking our values and the things that we believe? How do you respond to that? Well, I want you to know that these three young men didn't respond with anger. Did you notice that? There's no anger in their response. There's no intimidation in their response. There's no fear in their response. They're not angry at the king. They don't picket. They don't protest. They don't march. They just say, king, we really don't have to explain this to you because we answer to somebody higher. But, but we want you to know this. That, that we're not trusting in an earthly king to rescue us. That, that our faith is not in you, Nabi. We're not counting on our numbers. We're not going to call a rally to see how many of us there are. We know there's three, maybe four of us at best. We are trusting in a God that can save us. They didn't presume that God would save them, but they were convinced that God could save them. They knew that their God was bigger than Nebuchadnezzar. They knew that their God was bigger than the kingdom of Babylon. They knew that their God was bigger than the fiery furnace. The God they, they knew was a God who made the world by saying a word. 
The God they knew was a God who, who took an old man and, a, and an old woman, a hundred years old, and gave them a baby. The God they knew was a God who, who faced Pharaoh and defeated him with ten plagues. The God they knew was a God who opened the Red Sea so that his people could, could march and cross on dry land on their way to the promised land. The God they knew could make manna come from heaven. The God they knew could, could make water come out of a rock. They knew a God that could rescue them. They were convinced that that was their God. Who is your God? Do you believe that God can rescue? Do you believe God has the power to redeem you? Do you believe God has the power to give you victory? Is your God bigger than your troubles? Is your God bigger than your religion? Is your God bigger than your politics? If we're going to be victorious in our changing world, we need the confidence of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We cannot place our trust in anyone else or in anything else. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego believed that God could rescue them, but even if he chose not to, they still would not bow down before the image of gold. Wow, that's incredible faith. You know, faith means that you believe God can do something, but faith also means that if God chooses not to do something, you still trust him. That his providence and his plan are always perfect. That's the confidence that I want. I want to trust in a God that has the power to rescue, but I also want to trust in a God who when he chooses not to rescue, he's still worthy of my allegiance and obedience. It leads me to the third thing. As, as I'm running out of time, the crucible. That's how God rescues. Sometimes God rescues us from tragedy. Do you know about that? Sometimes God rescues us from tragedy. I, I remember many years ago, uh, I was a teenager and we were living in the valley and there was a hurricane coming, Hurricane Allen. And we took shelter at a church, my family, uh, and, and, and us, we, we took shelter at a church and, and we heard that this hurricane was one of the worst in history, that it was wreaking havoc uh, across the Caribbean and it was coming up the Gulf of Mexico, it was a category five and, and it had incredible winds and it was supposed to wipe out the Rio Grande Valley. And I remember uh, in that church as it was raining and windy outside that we were praying. We were praying that God would save us from Hurricane Allen. And we prayed and we prayed and we prayed and I remember as we were listening to these uh, battery radios that, that we heard somehow, the, the, the meteorologist couldn't explain, it. somehow it has gone, right before it hit landfall in Brownsville, it's gone from a category five to a category four, and then it went to a category three. It still came on land and there was still floods and, and rains and there was still some damage, but it wasn't what it was supposed to be. And, and I remember as a teenager, I remember that God answered our prayer and saved us from the storm. Sometimes God saves us in the storm. Do you remember when Jesus and his disciples were in the Sea of Galilee and, and there was this huge storm and, and Jesus was sleeping and his disciples woke him up and said, Jesus, hey, why are you sleeping? What are you going to do? And Jesus got up and, and he spoke to the wind and the wind calmed down and the waters became still. You know, in that occasion, Jesus chose to save his friends in the storm. He could have avoided the storm, but he allowed them to go through the storm. Because sometimes God rescues us 
in the middle of the storm. Did God rescue Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the fiery furnace? Let's look at verse 19. The Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude toward them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them in the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. God did not save these three young men from the fiery furnace. Did you notice that? These three had put their faith and trust in God. They had refused to to bow before the golden statue, yet God didn't save them from the fiery furnace. They were thrown in there. They were bound and, and, and thrown in the blazing furnace that was hotter than ever before. This would have been a great time for them to ask, God, why me? God, remember your promises. But, but God, God, I thought you loved me. Where are you right now? This would have been a great time to ask those questions because God didn't rescue them from the fire furnace. But what did he do? Well, verse 24 tells us, Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, Weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, certainly, your majesty. He said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, and the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their heads singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. There was no smell of fire on them. I make fajitas, and I smell like smoke. (laughs) They were in a fire furnace, and they didn't even smell like fire. God didn't rescue them from the fire furnace. He rescued them in the fire furnace. There was three of them, but the king saw four. I know who goes before me. I know who stands behind. The God of angels, armies is always by my side. Sometimes God rescues in the crucible. The crucible is where where metals are melted and refined. Sometimes God allows us to go through the fire furnace because he has a different plan. Some of you know that, that uh, my wife and I, uh, when, when, uh, when she was pregnant from my daughter Rachel, that, that we really had a difficult time. She, uh, she, uh, we almost lost her. She almost miscarried. And, and, and then my wife had to be in the hospital five weeks. It, it, was, it was hard. She was on strict bed rest. And, and we were wondering if the baby was going to be born okay every day for five weeks going to the hospital and trying to hear the reports. And then when Rachel was born, she was born at two pounds, 10 ounces. And, and she had to stay in the hospital to be cared for so that maybe we could bring her home when she reached a whopping five pound level. 10 weeks of 
of, of trial, 10 weeks of, of testing our faith, 10, ten weeks of, of, of just being tested in, in the deepest part of our hearts, one of the hardest times that, that we've ever gone through. And when Rachel uh, grew up, we told her the story because it's a story we think that always brings glory to God and how good and faithful he is. And when Rachel was a little girl, she said, when I grow up, I'm going to be a NICU nurse and I'm going to take care of little premature babies. And she went to nursing school and she graduated. And for two years, she's been in Lubbock at the University Medical Center. And every day she takes care of little preemie babies. She loves on them. Sometimes when you go through the crucible, you're never the same again. Your destiny changes. Your life changes. You know, uh, she takes care of babies. And, and this weekend, Rachel posted a, a sonogram picture. But it wasn't a sonogram of somebody else. It was her own sonogram. She's going to be a mama. And I'm going to be a grandpa. <laughs> yeah. We're never the same after the fire furnace. God is ultimately interested, yes, in rescuing us, but he's also interested in refining us. And ultimately, he's interested in receiving the glory. Finish the chapter with me, verse 28. And Nebuchadnezzar said, praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's commands and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubble for no other God can save in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Boom. That answers your question. What God can rescue you from my hand? There's the answer, Nebi. God's plan is always perfect. Sometimes he rescues from the fiery furnace. Sometimes he rescues in the fiery furnace. Sometimes he rescues after the fiery furnace. But he always loves. He always rescues. He always keeps his word we live in challenging times. This year, 2020, is like the beginning of a new era. And the world is changing at a rapid pace. And it sometimes can be scary and intimidating. But I hope as you remember the story of these three young men, you will be encouraged not to get angry, not to be fearful, not to be anxious, but to make a choice. Who are you going to worship? To be confident that your God can rescue and to be ready because sometimes you need to go through the crucible because often that's where God chooses to rescue. Would you stand with me? As we bow our heads and we respond to God's word, I, I wonder how God has spoken to you this morning and how you need to respond. So as you meditate on on what you've heard today, if the Spirit has spoken to you, maybe you need to identify an idol in your life that God is saying, you need to avoid this idol. 
or you need to remove it from your life altogether. What, what idol is that? Maybe God is asking you to do something today that's risky, that, that tests your faith. I don't know what that is, but you know. And today you want to say, yes, God, I'm going to trust you. Everybody else is going in a different direction, but, but you're calling me to go against the flow, and I'm going to do it. It's going to be costly, but I'm going to do it because I trust you. Maybe what you need to do today is just trust him in your fiery trial. Maybe you're going through the fire right now and, and it's just fatiguing. But you need to know that you're not alone in the furnace. That someone else is standing right beside you. And he will see you through. And today you just need to release your faith. Maybe today for the first time you, you need to become a follower of Jesus. You've never trusted him as Savior and Lord. And, and today you say, I want Jesus to be my Savior. N not, not the small Jesus of culture. Not the small denominational Jesus. Not, not the regional Jesus or the nationalist Jesus. I want, I want the King of kings and Lord of lords in my life and today you need to pray and receive his gift of eternal life and forgiveness you need to make him Lord Father I thank you for, for who you are we've sang about your greatness we rejoice in your power to save and we've heard this wonderful story of three young men who trusted you courageously. Help us to be like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in 2020, in the Rio Grande Valley, in Texas, in the USA. As we sing, I'm gonna invite you to come to the front. There's a place to kneel down if you wanna kneel down and, and just do business with God, you, you come. If you want to pray with someone, I'll be up here. There'll be pastors, deacons up here. We want to pray for you, whatever you're struggling with, whatever you're going through. We want to encourage you. We want to be with you. We want you to know you're not alone. As we sing, you come. <laughs>